0: Lizzie Jelly is generally a responsible person. She works hard, follows the rules, and tries to do what the experts suggest. Which was why, when her temperature started to rise in the first weeks of November, she didn't really think anything of it.
1: Two days after Election Day, I went and got a flu shot, felt absolutely fine. Um, they tempted me at the door. I got my flu shot on campus at UWM, like I usually do and did that was totally fine went to work after went home next day was my day off and i was like oh my muscles are kind of sore today which i thought was pretty normal because i usually have sore muscles after a flu shot and then i noticed that weekend i was feeling pretty tired like more tired than usual but i didn't think anything of it because i'm a grad student like we're always tired
0: but when she began to develop a kind of persistent headache lizzie knew it was time to get checked out It was the first week that the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee was allowing off-campus students to be tested, and Lizzie wanted to be one of the first ones in line.
1: Swab each nostril, Went through the system, got swabbed, went home.
0: A few hours later, Lizzie got a call.
1: (laughs) Knowing where this conversation is going, right, you know that if you test negative, they just email you, but if you test positive, they call you, and that's kind of the, the common knowledge at most testing sites. So I was already like, uh... This is not going to be a great call.
0: Lizzie's first test had come back positive. In order to confirm the diagnosis, the nurse told Lizzie she needed to come back in for a second test, which they scheduled for later that day.
1: Basically the entire day from like 1130 until like three o'clock when my test was scheduled was an anxious ball.
0: This second test also came back positive, confirming that Lizzie did have COVID-19. Lizzie's initial reaction was shocked. Though she worked at a job that required her to come into the office, her contact with other people was really minimal. And what's more, she even went above and beyond the Center for Disease Control's recommended guidelines.
1: <laughs> because I was like, I've literally done everything I was supposed to do. I sanitized my groceries repeat, sake. Like, how did I catch COVID? Like, have no clue where I got it except from just uncontrolled community spread. Kind of a wake-up call. We were like, kind of shocking.
0: Lizzie was one of nearly 8,000 Wisconsinites who also tested positive for COVID-19 that day. It was reflective of a moment when the coronavirus pandemic was simply out of control in the state. But Lizzie's experience is also reflective of what exactly makes a pandemic a pandemic. Community spread. Despite following all of the rules and taking every precaution, Lizzie still caught the virus. And in that window of time between when she first became contagious and then found out she had the disease, she could have transmitted it to other people as well. This was exactly the situation the city of Milwaukee found itself in a little more than 100 years ago when a highly contagious and deadly disease found its way to the city after having ravaged other parts of the globe. And today on the show, we'll look at how a disease that now seems so commonplace caused a global pandemic in 1918, and explore how it eventually ended up in our own backyard. From the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Department of History, I'm Chris Cantwell, and in partnership with the Milwaukee County Historical Society, this is the Healthiest City," a podcast about Milwaukee and its pandemics. So the story of the influenza's arrival in Milwaukee in late 1918 goes well beyond the city's boundaries. In fact, it's a story that would circle the globe more than once before it ended up on the shores of Lake Michigan. Our Pod story is Christina Grev.
2: Hey. I'm Christina Grev.
0: And Katie Bischoff...
2: Hello, my name's Katie
0: Bischoff. ...have the story.
2: In September of 1918, a sailor on leave from a U.S. Navy station traveled north toward America's heartland. His name was Vernon Stacy from Huntington, Virginia, and he was heading up to visit his friend, William Westphale, who was feeling unwell as of late. During his trip, Vernon began to feel a little under the weather, too. What he didn't know was that he had an additional passenger a microscopic piece of luggage that will be traveling
3: with him up the coast of Lake Michigan. That microscopic piece of luggage is the topic of our podcast today, the gripe, otherwise known as the Spanish flu. Vernon had likely picked up the virus while stationed, as encampments were a hotbed for such transmission. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we should take a step back to talk
2: about how the flu became a part of the human experience generally.
3: Earliest accounts of an influenza epidemic date back to the year 1173, and several other reports of outbreaks occurred during the 14th and 15th centuries. Starting with the first reputable effort to document influenza in the 17th century, Documentation has become increasingly more reliable.
2: The common flu we know of today first appeared in nineteen eighteen. A twenty fourteen study published the origins of the specific virus that caused the Spanish flu. It found that the virus was most likely linked to North American birds. Avian flu viral strains were also linked with the virus in horses that spread throughout horses and mules in North America in eighteen seventy two it is plausible that the virus was transmitted from horses to birds where it evolved and eventually made its way into humans in early 1918.
3: Today, we have the flu vaccine available to help protect us from the flu and limit infection rates each year. In 1918, however, this was not the case. Now, with greater knowledge of public health and the ability to track the spread of viruses with modern technology, we have a better understanding of disease outbreaks.
2: Michaela Sullivan Fowler, who is a public historian and health science librarian at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, explained the impact that the influenza of 1918 had on the world. It
4: became epidemic, pandemic proportions, mainly or mostly in part because of the war. So its, its transportability was massive. And so it wasn't a normal, quote-unquote, virus. It wasn't something that was mutating as it was going along. It wasn't an Ebola. But in the time that it was in, there were no antivirals. There were no antibiotics. There were no ventilators.
2: The timeline was shortened by the fact that the virus never seemed to act alone. The virus would be accompanied by bacterial infection causing pneumonia, which filled the lungs, triggering respiratory distress. And that's what killed people.
3: Pneumonia. If you happened to catch the flu, you could have only 24 to 48 hours until you were dead.
4: The demographic in terms of morbidity and mortality in the 1918 population was mostly young people between the ages of 18 and 32, which had an eventual effect on the rate of reproductive adults, the life expectancy in the planet. I mean, everything was affected by these enormous numbers.
3: To put it simply, the events of the First World War and the condition that it created for soldiers and civilians alike provided the perfect opportunity for the spread of the influenza. The
2: countries that formed the Allied and Central Powers were colonial powerhouses, leading to a massive mobilization of troops from around the world and converging on the European and African fronts. Additionally, the introduction of trench warfare as the advancement of troops came to a standstill created unsanitary environments as soldiers were confined in close proximity to one another in the trenches surrounded by mud and
3: filth. The virus became just as deadly if not more
4: so, than the war. If you didn't die from the war, you died from the flu. You had groups of mainly young men who were like, you know, two to five hundred to a thousand men in a camp, hundreds of men in trenches, hundreds of men on transport ships, hundreds of men living together in close quarters, and a virus that was just transferring from one to the next.
3: By 1918, the troops were exhausted from fighting, and governments needed to ensure the troops carried on until the war was through newspapers from the allied and central powers placed an embargo on discussing the flu in print to help circumvent the loss of volunteers for the front lines spain a neutral country was the first to print nationally about the sickness from there word spread to surrounding countries they began calling it the spanish influenza despite the fact it was already scattered throughout all of Europe.
2: Although the Spanish flu is not from Spain, the question still remains as to where this virus had originated. Michaela Sullivan-Fowler offers a couple of theories.
4: Whether or not it started in Etap, France, from a pig farm, there's also a, a newer one that it might have started with Chinese laborers who were in China, traveled across Canada, on trains and then went to Europe, mainly to the allied countries, to help dig the trenches because again, we had sort of run out of able-bodied people to dig the trenches in 1918.
3: However, a more prevailing narrative is that the virus came from a United States military base in Fort Riley, Kansas. The first symptoms of the virus appeared at the base Camp Funston in March 1918. 100 soldiers became ill with flu-like symptoms. Within a week, cases had quintupled. America was no longer neutral toward the war, and the virus could be easily shipped straight to the front lines. Milwaukee County Historical Society's Kevin Abing discusses the events that led to the United States' involvement.
4: And then at the end of January, there, the Zimmerman Telegraph was released, which the Germans they're trying to convince Mexico to basically <laughs> join the war against the U.S. And so that just inflamed uh, U.S. opinion even more uh, against the Germans. Um, and so it really, from that point on, it was just a matter of time before the U.S. joined officially the war effort. And you know they declared war in early April of 1917. And went on from there.
2: And with that telegram, the United States had officially entered the war.
4: Send the word, send the word over there That the Yanks are coming The Yanks are coming The drums rum coming everywhere So prepare Say a prayer Send the word, send the word To beware We'll be all. Coming over and we won't come back till it’s over, over there, over
2: there. The Allies were in desperate need for American troops, so the U.S. enacted a draft in June of 1917, which lasted throughout the war, creating an American army of over 4 million soldiers. Time was of the essence, and the mobilization and transportation of troops from America to Europe helped to accelerate cases of the virus outside of Camp Funston
4: and then spread uh, germs into the army barracks, then on trains across the country, and then on ships back and forth to Europe.
3: Cases had begun to take hold in the United States, but the issue of eradicating the flu was overshadowed by the war effort. Government officials were hesitant to take any action.
4: What we didn't have in 1918 was a governmental support of what was going on. Woodrow Wilson, president at the time, never admitted that there was a pandemic in the United States or even in the world. And when the general suggested that some of this might be because of the transfer of the troops and the living in the trenches and the living in the camps and shouldn't we maybe curtail some of the troop movement, he said, no, we're fighting a war.
2: Troop ships that were transporting soldiers from Europe became floating petri dishes. Captain Ernest W. Gibson documented the journey of the 57th Pioneer Infantry Regiment on the USS Leviathan, filled with infected troops on a journey across the Atlantic Ocean to France. The U-boat menace made it necessary to keep every porthole closed at night, and the air below decks where the men slept was hot and heavy. The number of sick increased rapidly. Washington was appraised of the situation, but the call for men and the Allied armies was so great that we must go on at a cost. The sick bay became overcrowded, and it became necessary to evacuate the greater portion of Deck E and turn that into sick quarters. Doctors and nurses were stricken. Every available doctor and nurse was utilized to the limit of endurance.
3: September 1918, a second wave of the pandemic hit. This wave was responsible for most of the deaths. One of the first outbreaks was at Camp Devons, a military training facility just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Troops from all over the United States were being sent to the East Coast in order to be shipped straight to the front lines. This caused the virus to quickly spread, making Eastern bases a
2: hotspot for the influenza. However, the flu did little to circumvent the overflow of naval bases in the East Coast, which resulted in sailors being shipped to different bases, such as the Great Lakes Naval Station in Illinois.
3: The Great Lakes Base published a daily newspaper called The Bulletin, and in their September 5th edition, the front page headlines read, Stationed to have 4,000 recruits from the East. Even during this time, as the flu ran rampant through the different encampments, Soldiers and sailors were still coming and going. Kevin Abing explains.
4: Um, you know, the commandant of the, the station, you know, they were granting leaves for soldiers. You know, they're heading out to the, you know, to the cities to, to have a good time and everything. And of course, they're, you know, they're, they're carrying the virus
2: with them. The Great Lakes Station praised themselves on the lack of influenza cases. In a bulletin article entitled, Total Absence of Griep Here Constitutes Unsolved Mystery," from September 13th, stated that,
1: Despite the epidemic in other parts of the country, Great Lakes is comparatively free from the griep.
2: The very next day, however, the station bulletin reported a different story.
1: The influenza, or the Spanish grip, as it has been commonly known for the past few months, which has been raging throughout Europe, has finally reached Great Lakes. The disease first appeared on the station last Wednesday, and since that time, about 200 cases have developed.
2: On September 15th of 1918, Lieutenant Vernon Stacy was on leave from the U.S. Navy Station in Great Lakes, Illinois. His final destination? Milwaukee. While visiting a sickly friend, Vernon came down with something as well and checked himself into the emergency hospital. On September 16th, Vernon's hospitalization would be noted in the Milwaukee Sentinel, which would also report Spanish influenza which is causing military and naval authorities so much trouble in the various cantonments and naval camps throughout the country, has reached Milwaukee. The pandemic had finally arrived and would be the ultimate test of Milwaukee's public health system.
0: Christina Grev and Katie Bischoff are dual public history and library information science master students at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee.
3: Influenza is a disease that make you weak, all in your need. Killed a fever, everybody should address. Puts a pain in every bone, a few days and you are gone place in the ground called grave.
0: Well, our show today was produced by Katie Bischoff and Christina Grev, with help from myself and the students of History and New Media at the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee. This episode featured material from the National Museum of the American Sailor, the Illinois Digital Newspaper Collection, the book World War I in America, edited by A. Scott Berg, and the Milwaukee County Historical Society. Music for this episode is by Poddington Bear and the Blue Dot Sessions, with additional sound from the Free Sound Archive. Our concluding song is called The Influenza Blues and comes from a recording held by the Library of Congress's American Folklife Center. The voice actors for this episode include Elizabeth Jackson, who is reading from the Great Lakes Bulletin, Ken Bartelt as the voice of the Milwaukee Sentinel, and Steve Bischoff as Captain Ernest W. Gibson. Thanks this week go out to Michaela Sullivan-Fowler and Lizzie Jelly for sharing their stories and Kevin Aving at the Milwaukee County Historical Society for helping us access the archive. And as always, to historian Judith Levitt, whose book The Healthiest City gave us both information and the title for our show. The Healthiest City is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Department of History and the Milwaukee County Historical Society. For more information, including photographs and documents from this era, check out Milwaukeehistory.net slash podcast and thanks for listening.
3: And the they down with us. It was God's almighty hand. He is judging this old nothing north and south, east and west, can be seen.